Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. If you're looking for jewelry that makes an impact on your self-care routine and your style, Empowerography would love to offer you a discount code to one of our exclusive partners, Quartz and Canary Jewelry and Wellness Company. Please use code EMPOWER15 to receive 15% off upon checkout at www.quartzandcanary.com. Quartz and Canary is truly the place where spirituality meets style. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Nadia George. She is a First Nations actor, media personality, and public educator. How are you doing today, Nadia? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and make the time and share a bit about your story and your journey. I'm honored and, and very happy to have you here as a guest and as a member of the Empowerography community. So thank you. I appreciate you. So Nadia, you are an award-winning McMoah Canadian actor, media personality, as I mentioned, public speaker and facilitator. How long have you been working as an actor and media personality? So I got back into acting, I believe it was about 2016. Okay. And the media personality part just came, I would say, within the last year. It just kind of organically grew itself as my following (laughs) social media grew (laughs) and people just, I guess, started to want to be a part of my journey. So you you said that you got back into acting. So I'm assuming you were in it for a while and then stepped away from it. And now you're getting back into it. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to give myself too much credit. I used to do community theater when I was okay. young. I don't and, think and... that's giving yourself too much credit. I think <laughs> you, you stepped away from it. That's okay. Yeah. So, and kind of went into, you know, other, other avenues as a, as a child. And so, yeah, I just, you know, I, I found the love for it again, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess you could say I, I, you're right. I did. I got back into it. <laughs> <laughs> what inspired you to get into acting? So when I was little, I remember two points in my life. One was when I saw the play Annie Mm -hmm. and I just loved the energy, the dancing, all of those kinds of things. And the other point was when I watched Benny and June and, (laughs) you know, growing up in a childhood that was challenging and difficult, the idea of being able to be on stage and be in movies was, you know, almost like happy escape. Right. And so when I was when I was young, being on stage allowed me to be in a different world and be somebody else. And so that was kind of when I first got the bug and started doing community theater and singing and being in choirs. And then, you know, life happens and my my journey went in a different way. And it actually was in university. I was able to take theater as an elective. And I did theater for a year in university. And I just realized how much I loved it, how much joy it brought me. So when my son was kind of old enough doing his own thing, he had a band going and they were kind of touring all over Ontario and Canada. Okay. And I thought, you know what? 
if he can do it, I can do it. And you know, now I've got some time to myself. So I just decided to, to take a risk. And so far it's paid off. And I'm, I'm really happy I made that choice. I love it. So your son inspired you. That's great. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what your first paying gig as an actress was? Yes, I do. <laughs> it was for Paranormal Survivor, <laughs> which is like one of those ghost docudramas. I played, I guess, paranormal investigator, an indigenous paranormal investigator. And I think I made 50 bucks. (laughs) You know, people think you get paid a lot of money to do this in the beginning. And it's just so not true. You need to keep a day job. That is for sure. (laughs) You need to pay your dues. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. What is it that excites you or is your favorite part about being an actress? Oh, you know what? Honestly, it's about bringing someone's story to life whether it be a fictional story or factual story just being able to see the world through someone else's eyes even though we bring our own truth to it it allows me to see the world from perspectives that I probably wouldn't otherwise excellent now you've gained some recognition for your role in the short film her water drum and you also won an award for achievement in acting at the la skins film festival can you tell us a bit about the film and your role and also what it meant to you personally to win that award yeah absolutely her water drum is a film that focuses on a mother and a son who have lost essentially the 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 daughter and the sister and what it's like as a family to have to pull yourself together, to have to keep pushing. In Indigenous communities, our women go missing frequently, almost at an epidemic level. And, you know, often we we hear about, you know, the girls going missing within our own communities, but there isn't a lot of it talked about in the mainstream media. Right. And we also don't necessarily, you know, highlight what's happening for these families. So the movie really kind of takes it from that perspective. And I played Jolene, the mother. And for me, being a part of that movie was almost like a, a big weight on my shoulders, but it was a privilege to be able to play that role. I really just wanted to make sure that I did it justice uh-huh. because there are so many families out there that are going through this and have suffered and are still suffering because of the loss of family members in our communities. And to me, this was a tool to be able to share it with the world and start bringing more awareness to what's happening. Right. Winning that award was almost kind of like a validation on, I guess, the work that I had done and knowing that other people saw it. And they felt like I did, I guess, that role justice, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, brought a truth to that story. And that's really all I wanted for that piece. So winning that award, you know, I say that hopefully one day I'll I'll win an Oscar, but I don't even think it would still top that because that movie means so much to myself and to so many other people. Was this short film based on a true story? I mean, I know overall it's based on these stories within the Indigenous community and what the Indigenous community deals with. 
very frequently, but was this based on a specific story or? From my understanding, it was a collective of, um, so John Elliott, the director is Tuscarora Turta clan from Six Nations in Ontario. Okay. And he did a lot of research with families, stories to really make sure that we were doing this in a very sensitive and caring way. So it's not just based on one story, but more a collective of how the families are affected. Okay. Can you tell us about some of your other work as an actress that you've done? Anything we might know or recognize you from? Anything else? So I do a lot of docudramas. One of the ones that I find people most often message me about is Fear Thy Neighbor. It is a really big show in the States and is now gaining popularity within Canada. And a lot of people are like, oh, I saw you on that show. And I play the wife of a family our neighbors end up getting into a bit of a quarrel with another neighbor over some land that's being built on and the the premise of the show usually is that somebody dies (laughs) so I won't say who if people want to go watch it they can they can see the episode and you know I it's funny I get a lot of people screenshotting me I saw you in this so I (laughs) yeah so I've I've done that. Along the Water's Edge was another musical, uh, or sorry, a lyrical film that was done that addresses the water crisis within Indigenous communities. So that went out and a lot of people responded to that as well. And there was a media run done on that. And then more frequently, the Toronto History Museum did an art kind of festival exhibit and it included short films. And that one was called The Awakening Series. And our film specifically was called acknowledgement and it is a great short film that documents the true history of how Toronto was made and also asking people what they acknowledge when they do land acknowledgements like what are they really understanding about the words that they're saying so that was pretty powerful and one that I was really proud to be a part of And we have stuff still coming out. So in October, there will be a really cool kind of spooky horror eight-part series (laughs) that will be coming out. I believe it's coming out on Discovery Plus. So hopefully it will be available in Canada. But as far as I know right now, it will be available in the state. Um, I got to work with director Adam McDonald, who did Pie Whack It. And he's just amazing. If anybody wants to Google him, he's got work on Shudder and when I found out I was getting to work with him, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I don't, I don't really like to watch horror movies. I'm one of those people that can't sleep for three months after. <laughs> but like, just to be able to work with someone who is so talented, you know, and he also did the movie, I, I want to say it's called Backcountry. And it's about a man eating bear. And it <laughs> that I did watch. It's a great movie. So yeah, that's going to be coming in October. I can't say too much about it because okay. we haven't really, really released it. But executive producer is Eli Roth. Okay. Who did Inglorious Bastards yeah, yeah. and some other movies. So really, really excited for this to come out. Nadia, when you seek out roles, do you seek out roles that allow you to portray an Indigenous character in particular? Or is this something that just 
kind of happens for you when you're taking on roles? So I do audition quite frequently for Indigenous roles. Okay. In regards to the roles that I've already been a part of, I actually, John Elliott had reached out to me and asked me to audition. Okay. I was very honored by that. And then I've worked with John Elliott on a number of projects. But the important thing for me is kind of deciding where the story is getting told, who's telling it, what is the story about? Because, you know, when we look at Indigenous culture in general, there's many stereotypes and narratives and discourses around Indigenous people. And I think it's really important that it's the right people telling those stories. Right. So there have been certain roles that my agent has asked me to audition for that I just didn't feel comfortable that I was the person to do that, especially when there are stories about being on the reservation, because I'm an, I'm an urban Indigenous person. And I think the other thing that we're really careful about is not putting ourselves in boxes that we don't belong in. Uh-huh. And there's so much Indigenous talent out there that I want to make sure I'm still creating space for those people or leaving space, I should say, for right. those people to also flourish. Yeah. Well, so it is difficult. It's difficult to navigate that world. But my agent is fabulous. She's super supportive. And she always understands when, you know, I ask questions or make decisions, especially if it's people that are coming forward and they're writing Indigenous stories, but they don't have a proper Indigenous consultant or they're non-Indigenous themselves. Yeah. Those ones I usually tend to decline because I feel that it should be Indigenous people telling Indigenous. Yeah, the, I would imagine the authenticity is not there for you in, in when you're reading over or when you're when they're telling you about the role. If it's a non-Indigenous director or producer or, you know, the authenticity won't be there as if it was an Indigenous director, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That that makes total sense. It wouldn't resonate with you for sure. So what have you been doing to keep yourself busy since the pandemic started in terms of acting? I mean, I would imagine not many projects were being shot, although things are starting to open up now. So what were you doing during all this time in terms of not having any acting work. I've actually been busier this year than I've been in any wow. other year. You know, I'm hearing that from a lot of people, actually. <laughs> yeah, I um So in the beginning, for the first probably three or four months, the, the acting world did shut down as they were trying to figure out how are we going to have people audition? How are we going to be able to shoot on set? All of those things were still being managed. But once they got it figured out, it just... Boomed. I've been doing more auditions than I have in the past. And I think it's because of the accessibility, being able to send in self-tapes. They can see more people. They did a really great job around working with the COVID situation on set. You know, I actually feel worse for the crew because <laughs> it's a lot of work on set. And yeah. they deserve all of the credit, essentially, because now they're working in skeleton crews, which means that there's, you know, only a number of people, but they're having to do multiple jobs. Right, right. So to be honest with you, I've actually been really busy. But the other thing that's been keeping me busy is doing my public speaking and my public educating. Okay. Because of the fact that we're able to do it virtually, yes. I've been able to speak in places that normally would maybe take me a couple hours to drive to. So not having the travel time has allowed me <laughs> to do more of them. So it's it's been a really great year for me. That's a great benefit. You know, plus, I mean, 
yes, you're getting to do more of them, but you also don't have to travel. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm sure as a speaker, though, you must miss that, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, feedback or reciprocation from the audience when you're live. It's, it, I mean, that's a huge difference for sure. It is. Energy transfer for me yeah. is a big deal. You get the feeling from the crowd. Yeah. And it's, you know, I've never been a comedian. I don't know what it's like <laughs> to be in that stage. <laughs> but what I do know is that you can tell from the audience whether or not what you're saying is hitting home. Yeah. Or is it making sense? Do you need to make a shift? When you're in a virtual setting, a lot of people don't keep their cameras on. Yeah. So it's kind of like talking to an empty room. But at the same time, for the ones that do engage, it's almost like it's more beneficial because you're like, okay, they're actually taking the time <laughs> to turn their cameras <laughs> on and to ask the questions and things like that. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons to it, but I, I'm very much looking forward to actually getting into a room, getting on stage and really sharing that energy. Did you take any acting lessons or are you completely self-taught? So when I was younger, we had, a you know, your regular drama teacher in school, but he was very passionate about theater. And then I took the year of theater in university, but I have been training ever since. I think that training and coaching is extremely important. People like Tom Cruise and Emma Stone still engage with coaching and training it's you know it's not something that people should give up as an actor I've you know trained at Proactors Lab I've uh, done many workshops with casting directors I'm currently a student with the LB acting studio and I sit on their BIPOC committee as well and so for me I would say that you know being self-taught you know it's interesting as an actor when people say self-taught because acting itself is yourself Right. You are bringing yourself. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, you get taught, you know, how to do a self tape. You get taught how to have, you know, the right etiquette in a casting room. You get taught how to be on set. But being an actor isn't necessarily something, if you want to be a good actor, isn't necessarily something that is just a book that one teaches you. It's really about what you're bringing to the story and how you perceive those characters and building, you know, a life around them. Because sometimes we get what we call sides. So that means you only get a part of the script. Okay. Well, you kind of have to build your own story about who the character is. What was her life before? What is her life like now? So I think that these are things naturally that we we do have in ourselves if if you really do want to be an actor <laughs> but the yeah the the teaching and the technical stuff is stuff that we are continuously learning well i think that holds true in life in general i mean we we must always be improving and learning and educating i don't think we ever reach at least we shouldn't ever reach that end stage where we don't have to learn anymore i mean Life mm-hmm. is a lesson. You're always learning. There's always stuff to learn. And you can always, always, always improve in every area. I agree. That's why I always say to my clients and to, to the youth that I meet, I'm like, there's a reason why there's not 25-year-old Zen Buddhas. There's a reason because it takes, it takes so much time of learning and practicing yeah. and growing that awareness and experiencing things and failing. And like you said, you know, most of us, 
if we're looking at, you know, the hierarchy of needs and uh, self-actualization is most of us continue to realize that we're still so unaware of ourselves yeah. <laughs> as we get older. So it's, you know, that's, that's the great thing about life. Yeah. Always a work in progress for sure. What's the first thing you do to research and approach a role? So I actually just read the script as a, as a book. Okay. I just try to define the nuances and, and understand it. I think in the beginning and even sometimes if it's a really big role, we get nervous. Yeah. And so we try to just focus on remembering the lines. But when we do that, we lose the emotion of the characters. And emotion is essentially what keeps memory. So if things don't have an emotional tie to it, it's harder to remember. So I do that first. Yeah. And then once, uh, if, it, if it's something that is already in a novel, or it's a series that's already been running, I'll actually go and try to read the novel, or I will look at where the series has gone. Yeah. I also look at the other characters' breakdowns and find out what are the relationships there? What do the characters bring to each other? And that's kind of how I do my research. And then the other thing I do is I either think of things that have happened in my life that reflect maybe the journey of the, the character. Yeah. Or I speak with someone I know that's been through something like that hmm. and really try, like I said, to, to feel it. I think so often we as actors, you know, go into psychology and my acting coach, Lewis from LB Acting Studio is just, he's amazing. He's going to hate that I gave him a plug there. But, you know, he said to me, it's, it's not psychology, it's physiology. What does your body feel in this moment? Yeah. How would you actually be? in this moment. And so that's kind of the perspective I take it from. Okay. What would you say is your strength as an actor? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. I honestly, I, I have a good memory. <laughs> so that's one of the things that I would, I would definitely say is that I actually do have a good memory. It's, it's easy for me generally to remember lines, Yeah. but I also think that, you know, I have a lot, I don't know if I want to say, I guess it's built into a strength, but I have a lot of different lived experiences and also being a therapist for over a decade, I've been able to listen to other people's experiences and truly listen. So that kind of is one of my strengths is that I do have so much tucked away in my toolbox to be able to pull from that when I'm in those moments, I usually, not always, but usually can really feel what the character's feeling. Yeah. Who do you consider to be your acting role model? Whose career would you like to emulate and why? Oh, there's so many. I love Anthony Hopkins. I am like, I love all of his movies. I love the way he approaches his roles. I follow him on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I love Anthony Hopkins, but I also, you know, there's, there's just so many that I, I think of. In regards to females, I would say Helen Murin. Yeah. Really, really love her. I'm just a spicy character. And I find that the two of them tend to play spicy characters. They tell really great stories. So for me, those are kind of my role models in regards to the actual talent yeah. and the drive that it takes to be an actor. 
but I, I, there's so many. There's so many out there. I don't even know that I could name them all. Yeah. So let's let's go back to. I know we touched very very briefly on your speaking, your public speaking. How long have you been a public speaker and facilitator, and how did you get started in that world? So I actually only started public speaking maybe about two and a half years ago. It actually just kind of came out of the blue. Somebody came and asked me to be a speaker at a gala to share my story. And I just realized how much I enjoyed it. It is super nerve wracking. People think because you're an actor that you can just get up on stage and you can, you can tell, you know, just speak these words. But when you're in that room for the first time and you realize that, you know, when you're on set, you get to do it 10 times if you need to. Right. When you're in that room, you get it once. That's it. That's all you get. Yeah, that's one. You got this one shot. That's all. <laughs> yeah. And so my first speaking engagement was at Abbey Park High School in Oakville. And I got to speak at uh, Crossbow Canada's career breakfast to the students. And I realized how much I enjoyed it. But also, I think sometimes we undervalue ourselves. Because we're so afraid of being egotistical or being, um, you know, too into ourselves. But when I did that speech and then I I thought back on it, I was like, you know what? My life journey really has given me so much to share. And it made me want to share more. So, and then I got asked to speak at the gala to share my story there. And it was just, it was nice to see people actually wanted to hear it I was kind of surprised and at that point that's when I just started realizing you know what how else can I work with this how else can I share my story so that way I can support other people or empower other people that's got to feel great to know that people want to hear your story and are engaged when you're speaking about your story so I'm assuming that most of your public speaking engagements are you telling talking about your personal story like that's your favorite topic to speak on I would imagine you know what my favorite topic is actually just speaking about indigenous challenges, okay. which you know still kind of ties into my personal yeah. story. I don't mind sharing my personal story because I do want people to know that you can come from very little and have very little and but still have major successes, big okay. successes, and even you know, small successes or big successes. I know that sounds a little bit <laughs> crazy. But for me, you know, I've just realized having this platform, it's so much bigger than myself. And I I think it comes from more of a place of authenticity when you're speaking about your story because you lived it. It is you, right? Yeah, yeah. My favorite topics are really in talking to youth about, you know, what they can accomplish and, and hearing and sharing their dreams. And also, you know, bringing awareness to the challenges that Indigenous communities face. And also trying to change this narrative about what it means to be a contemporary Indigenous person now with everything that's going on. Yeah. So in addition to all of these things that you're doing, acting, public speaking, philanthropic work is very high on your list of priorities. What is it about philanthropic work that lights you up or inspires you so much? I think it, it's, you know, we all search for our passion and our purpose. That is what keeps us healthy and my humanitarian work that's what it does for me it literally feeds my soul and I just don't know who I would be without it to be honest with you I've always wanted to help people I watched my dad 
um, you know, go through a hard life. And he still found the time to volunteer with things like Special Olympics. And he had instilled in me at a very young age that it was important that we give back to our community, that we protect our loved ones, that we do what we can to make this world a better place than it was, you know, before us. Yeah. So I think that's just something that was always instilled in me. And it's, it's a part of being Indigenous. Community is so essential. You know, I've heard it being said that we're all links on a chain. And when that chain gets lifted, we all rise. And that's how I feel. I think that there's just so much good that can be done in this world. And all it takes is one person. And I just hope to be the role model that I never had. And, you know, my, my father would tell me that, you know, you're born with so many gifts creator has given you all of these gifts. So as you, you know, gain knowledge, use those gifts on your journey. So that way, you know, in your next life, you can share all that you've learned. And I have always found that to be a beautiful saying, but for me, it's like, I want to share it now, (laughs) 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 but I want to share it now because I, I have the opportunity and I feel like it's it's just an obligation I've taken on. I love that you said it takes one person because I think that so often when we talk about making a difference or doing philanthropic work or anything along those lines, people get stuck in this mindset that, oh, what can I do? I'm only one person. I can't make a difference. But it, it's that little bit that you contribute. It's that contributing piece that starts the wheels in motion that is a link in the chain, as you said, that makes that difference. And then everybody else joins in. And like you said, it raises the chain. Hmm. I just, I just wish that more people would get on board and realize that, you know what, you can't make a difference, no matter how small you think it is. It's still a contribution, which will raise the entire cause. Absolutely. I think often it's just because people don't know where to start. Yeah. You know, and I, and I say that like, like, well, I don't understand why this person isn't doing this. And I, I say to them, you know, sometimes it's not the fear of failing. It's the fear of succeeding. Yeah. Like, very true. What do we do when we succeed? And even for me, as my platform grows and my following grows, you start to question yourself and you do become fearful around success and what that, what that means, because it is a large weight, especially being a person who people have said that, you know, you're a role model for the youth, you're a role model for future generations, you're a role model for single moms. You're, you know, it's a big responsibility to carry huge responsibility and it's, but it's not meant for everyone. And I think that we need to start showing kindness to people who aren't just out in the public and using their voices that way. There's so many ways that people can support initiatives, you know, even just sharing the post, talking yeah. about it to a neighbor, donating if you have the money. I think often we just, you know, we, we put kind of a label on what it means to be a humanitarian. And I just yeah. don't find that that label is always accurate. I think it all starts with discussion, though. That's where everything begins is talking about it and bringing awareness to whatever cause it is that, that, we're, that we're talking about and, and trying to further. But it starts with discussion and talking about it. Then the action Absolutely. starts. And, but like you said, just having the discussions, um, bringing yourself the awareness about the topic and then going from there that's those little things like he's a comment on a post share a post whatever it may be that is contributing although it may seem very small 
you're still taking part in it. Yeah. And the comments and the shares, you know, I think people, maybe they do know, maybe they don't. But for me, when I see somebody comment on a post that, you know, meant a lot to me or someone shares a post of mine, yeah, that actually is doing the work that I'm doing. They don't, they don't realize it, but they're empowering me. They're supporting me. They're helping inspire me to continue to do the work. So when people are like, oh, I wish I could do the work that you do. Well, you are doing it. You're just doing it in a different way because yeah. you're, you're empowering me. Yeah. So yeah. I, you know, I like to, to thank people when they do share, if I can, I don't always see it Yeah. <laughs> but when I do see it because they didn't have to. Yep. And that to me, just, it means so much. It, it speaks volumes and gratitude is, is so important and integral today. And like you said, kindness and things like that, like these mm-hmm. things are so simple for people to put forth into the world yet. I don't know. We as a human race, I can't understand why we struggle so much with the simple concept of kindness. It really is very, very simple. When you, break it down to, to bare bones. It doesn't cost you anything to be kind to anybody. And it's such a simple thing to do and it makes someone else feel good. Yeah. In fairness, I think, you know, some people might argue with me, but I think that that's a cultural thing Uh that gets instilled in us in a Western world. Yeah. Coming from, you know, being mixed indigenous allows me to have two perspectives. It allows me to be in two worlds. Yeah. And Coming from the Western world where it's very individualistic. I don't even know if that's a word. Did I just yeah, create a word? Yeah, no, I, I know um, what you mean. Everyone's out for themselves. Yeah. And, and, but that's something that's instilled in us as young children. It's, you know, who's getting the A's in class? Yeah. Who is, who is participating? Yeah. Who's doing their best? You know, but from an indigenous perspective, we come at it from, we all need to help each other community when one isn't doing well or when one is weak we step in yeah. to support that person's role because we will all flourish if we do that that's right so this idea that you know we put so much emphasis on you know yeah i'm a i'm an individual person i did everything on my own i just i i argue and i challenge that statement i remember i was talking to an elder when i was probably about well, maybe 16 uh-huh. and i was having this conversation you know i moved out of my home when i was 15 right and living on my own and i had that mentality at the time of yeah. i'm doing it all on my own i don't need anybody's help and I remember he said to me, he goes, how did you get to this meeting today? And I said, <laughs> well, I took a taxi. And he said, so did you drive the taxi? <laughs> I love it. No. And he goes, so who drove the taxi? I said, well, the taxi driver. He goes, so somebody helped you get here. <laughs> and I just kind of like sat there. And I remember being very angry because yeah. I couldn't argue with this. Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, he said, we, whether it's indirectly or, or not, somebody is helping you. And exactly. so in that regard, when you talk about the kindness, we need to start recognizing that we don't do everything on our own and that we, we do can. No, we cannot. We simply and, cannot. Yeah. And we need to show kindness yes. to people because without others, regardless of how we see ourselves, we probably wouldn't be wherever we are today in our own successes. I agree with you 100%. And all of this needs to start at home with the foundation Mm -hmm. of instilling these values into our children from a very young age so that 
as they grow, it's just instilled in them and it just becomes part of who they are and that's it. They don't know any different. And that's where it all starts is instilling these values in our children to carry on for future generations. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm, I was a very young mom yeah. and, you know, I did this with my own son, but I was also a nanny for a number of years right. and the kids were quite young and the mother thought it was hilarious that at every birthday, even though I would give them a little gift, their real gift was that they would get an extra responsibility. <laughs> I love and, it. and the mother just thought it was the most hilarious thing because, you know, there's two twin boys and a girl. And I remember they came home and they were like, Nadia said, my birthday gift is that I get to use the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> it's like teaching our young ones that we all need to contribute. For sure. 100%. Because then they grow up just knowing that this is part of who you are. This is what you have to do. You have yeah. to do things to help out around the house. And kids should be taught to do chores and that they have responsibilities Absolutely. this way. When it comes time to actually going out and getting a job, it's not a big deal. Oh, I just, this is part of my responsibility. I've got to, I've got to put the work in. I've got to do the work. And to work as a team to strengthen, to strengthen your team. Again, it's, it's all about community for sure. Absolutely, Nadia, can you talk to us a bit about some of the organizations you work with and your role within these organizations around your philanthropic work? Yes, Absolutely. Um, so I just most recently, and the one thing I'm really excited about, have been announced and have joined Water First, which is a non-government organization that works through education, training, and collaboration in Indigenous communities within Canada. Congratulations. To, yeah, to do water science, and also they do intern water operator certifications. Mm-hmm. So really trying to bring clean water into our Indigenous communities through sustainability and trust. So that's very, very exciting for me. The other one that I work on, I sit as a lived, as an advisor with lived experience for the Child Welfare um, Political Action Committee. So the Child Welfare PAC. And essentially what we do is we, we speak with ministers and MPPs and people in the community who are kind of in charge of policy building to create brighter futures for current and, f- and former foster kids. As a person with lived experience of the child welfare system, you know, I, I think to myself how much more I could have possibly done or maybe even what I've done now, but sooner if I had just had the right guidance. And I think that when we ask our, you know, when the government is parents of children, we want to make sure that these children are getting the most supportive, loving, kind, and empowering parenting possible. Yeah. So part of the Child Welfare Pact, our successes are, are so amazing within the four years. We're still a very young organization. My, my best childhood friend, Jane Kovarikova, is the founder and CEO. And she also has lived experience. And our second, our, our private members bill for the Fairness Privacy Act, which will essentially, hopefully, give more control to former and current foster care kids around their own files, has just passed second reading. So we're really excited Amazing. about that. That's awesome. And another success of ours is we have over 250 free tuition spots within wow. 15 universities and colleges across Canada in five different provinces and growing. 
So we're very excited about that, you know, and like I said, these, we want these kids to have brighter futures. And the great thing about the free tuition is it differs from many tuition waivers because there was no age limit. So if wow. you spent time in foster care, don't quote me on the exact amount of time right. you needed, but you can go back to school at the age of 55. That is incredible. Such amazing work you're doing. I think that's so amazing. And then the two other the two other ones, Influencers Motivate. I've been working with them since 2019. Okay. And they're a really amazing organization that works through various creative art forms. Yeah. And we go into Indigenous communities. I specifically was in the Northwest Territories. I know they've had tours in Alaska and they've had tours in Nunavut as well. Yeah. And we just get to engage with communities. We were up there doing wellness film workshops. So we were working with youth, teaching them how to use the cameras, teaching Very them how cool. to edit after. They also got to do some interviewing skills and awesome. interviewing some seniors of the community sharing their stories about what it's been like to grow up yeah. uh, in the Northwest Territories. So that was really fun. And we get to dance and sing and play. <laughs> but, you know, it's just about bringing, bringing happiness. And for me, like I said, I, that just feeds my soul. It, it is just so much fun to be a part of that. So I'm really so honored to be a part of that organization. And I currently sit on the BIPOC committee for the LB Acting Studio, as I had mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. And for me, that's a, an interesting one because I know what it was like as a novice actor coming in, not knowing how do I get an agent? How do I know if my agent's legit? What do I do in a casting room? What's acceptable for them to ask of me? How do I keep myself protected? I didn't have any of those answers. And so when Lewis asked me to be a part of the BIPOC committee for, you know, the new and novice or even experienced actors, I was really honored. And I just hope that I can keep, you know, people safe and that I can give them some of the, the guidance that I never had, because it's <laughs> definitely a difficult world to navigate when you're on your own. <laughs> well, I think it's incredible the work, you, all the work you're doing. It's, it's beautiful. Thank you. Now, I read that the focus of your work is on uplifting young voices. And I know you mentioned you like working with the youth, addressing stigmas around contemporary Indigenous identity and advocating for the equity of Indigenous communities and people in Canada. Can you speak to us a little bit about why this is so personally important to you? Absolutely. As a youth who lived a very challenging life and being the oldest of all my siblings, I didn't have what I would consider at the time a healthy role model. And it led me down a lot of toxic, painful relationships and roads that I think otherwise I wouldn't have gone down if I had had at least, you know, a few good healthy role models growing up as a very young child. And I guess for me, it's just, I want to protect first off our women yeah. Of young girls, because I know what that's like. And, you know, being a young mom, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was difficult navigating that as well. But also, you know, just watching my, my parents and the struggles that they face with their own internal pain and having to heal through that intergenerational trauma really just made me want to get into this work. I've been wanting to do this work since I was young. I think I've always kind of been the helper. I think my <laughs> sisters can attest to that, that I've always just tried, you know, be the lead and take on the challenges and, yeah. 
you know, support people where I can. And then I got into the volunteering. I started volunteering with Simcoe Community Services, which I now believe is renamed, but I just, I loved working with the people and the laughter and just the joy, being able to bring joy to someone else's life is so it, it it's worth more money than anyone can oh, probably for get, sure right? yeah you you can't put a price on having impact on on another human being's life there's nothing there is no feeling like it and it it's honestly i would say i mean i've never won the lottery but i would say it's it's better than winning the lottery to have that kind of impact on another human yeah And I think for the Indigenous pieces, my father was, you know, like I said, he chose a rocky path and he was incarcerated most of my childhood, but we always were in contact Yeah, for the most part. There was a few years that we weren't, but, you know, he wanted to do this work. And I remember hearing the pain in the letters he would send me or the pain in the voice when he would call me, or even when we were in person having conversations around what was happening to our Indigenous communities and the narrative about Indigenous people, these these made up outright lies and the way that the Canadian state was built. And for me, it just, you know, I didn't really understand it as a young child. But when I got into college and university and started to really do research on the statistics, when it really hit me. And I was like, at that time, I didn't know I was going to have this platform. But what I did know was that I wanted to try to do this work in some capacity of just trying to bring more awareness to the truth of what's really happened in this country. And I think as a mixed Indigenous person, you know, also having settler Canadian descent, I felt like I had an obligation because I know that sadly, my voice gets heard in rooms where other Indigenous voices don't. And so I'm not saying that's an, that's an obligation for all mixed Indigenous people, because I would never put that on anyone. But I've, I've taken that on myself. And I feel like I, I have a privilege to live the life that I do. And so I need to use it for more than just myself. I love that. And I love the awareness around it. It's, it's phenomenal. What are a few of the most important stigmas around contemporary Indigenous identity that are in urgent need of addressing in your personal opinion? I think the fact that every, you know, that there's this conversation that every Indigenous person lives based on the, the taxes that are paid by Canadians. <laughs> You know, and I, and I I kind of chuckle sometimes when people say that. And I say, would you say you pay a lot in taxes? And they say, yeah. And I said, so why is it that Indigenous people are so poor then? Why is it that they don't have clean drinking water? If all this money is going to support Indigenous people, why are they living in third world conditions? Yeah. You know, and people will come back to me with, well, you know, will they choose how to spend their money? And I, you know, there's just so much misinformation that surrounds those those pieces. I think the other thing is that thinking that Indigenous people don't have skill or talent or so many inventions, so many things that we do today, we have them because of Indigenous influence. So I, you know, I kind of, I kind of get sunglasses, for instance. The Inuit were using, or sorry, Inuit were using sunglasses since I took Memorial. <laughs> um, 
little things that people people don't recognize or realize. And I think also the stereotype of what we're supposed to look like. And this happens a lot in Hollywood. What does it mean to be a Hollywood native? You know, they they have this idea of this consistent dark skin wearing leathers. You know, it, it's quite interesting. And I even spoke with, uh, I guess I would say it's newcomers to Canada. They had, they came from Italy and I remember them telling me they were shocked when they got here because they actually thought that when they came to Canada, they were going to see dances with the wolves. (laughs) And, you know, they, they said this in the most kind and, and, and empathetic way but it was just this idea of like if that's what's being put out into the world so for me it's like okay we need to start having these conversations we need to start talking about the talent the skill the intelligence that's within our communities we need to start talking about the contributions that indigenous people have made educating people absolutely we we need to start having these conversations so i think for me canada right and, and more specifically right now we need to start talking about the truth of yes. how Canada was formed. And when people say to me, but look at all that we have now, like Canada is such a great country. Look at all that we have now. I always kind of throw out there. I'm like, well, it's interesting you say that because we actually don't know if it's worse or better yeah. because we never got a chance to collaborate. Yeah. We never got a chance to work together. Canada as a country known now could actually be a hundred times better. We don't, we'll never know that That's until right. we start doing that work. And the other thing I find is funny is that a lot of environmentalists, you know, are, are pushing for clean water and, and you know, the, stopping the cutting of the trees, which is amazing. But when our government is looking to other countries like Iceland and Sweden to find better ways to start doing things, I kind of chuckled to myself. I'm like, okay, but we were doing that before you came yeah like it, it, these, these look, are not look new within the country <laughs> yeah look within so the country yeah so why don't we start looking yeah at the origi- and speaking with the original peoples of this land right. that education and ears <laughs> absolutely what are some of the struggles or adversities or stigmas that you personally have faced or had to deal with and also have or are they worse for you because you are an indigenous woman So one of the things that is, it's a tricky one for me, because in the sense of non-Indigenous people, Mm -hmm. I'm white passing. From what I've heard from my own community, they're like, you need to stop saying that because you do look Indigenous. (laughs) (laughs) But for non-Indigenous people, because there's the stereotype of what Indigenous people should look like, I'm white passing. And that has been difficult in casting rooms where white casting, sorry, I shouldn't say casting directors, casting directors I've worked with have been really phenomenal, but clients, non-Indigenous clients, non-Indigenous directors will often really question me. Wow. Now, whether or not that's because they want authenticity and they're actually doing it out of place of good, you know, I, I, I'm happy if, if they really want to make sure that, you know, that an Indigenous person is playing an Indigenous role, yeah. but it's about how they're going about it. I specifically remember one time still makes me upset and angry. And my agent was mad that I didn't tell her about it, but I was so distraught and hurt that I didn't even know how to address it. I was in a casting room for a commercial. They had brought three of us women in. There was a woman who identified as Asian, a white woman and myself. 
And I was told by my agent, you know, go in where, wear your regalia or, you know, um, the, the things that you would maybe wear to, to a ceremony. I said, right. okay. So the, the other two women were asked, what were their hobbies? What, what were some of the things that they liked to do when it came to me, they just asked about my clothes. They didn't see a person at all. They saw an object. Wow. And when I had started talking about it, I had talked about how a friend of mine had gifted me the necklace I was wearing. Yeah. And as Indigenous people, gifting is very important. When someone gives you something, you either, you know, give them tobacco tie or you you give something in return. Even if it's not in that moment, the gift is there waiting. Right. And just because I had said an Indigenous friend of mine had gifted me this this necklace, they actually then questioned me. They're, wait, they're like, okay, so wait, you're Indigenous or... Like, what the hell? I've never felt so belittled. And believe me, I've been in some spaces where <laughs> I've been made to feel belittled. But I left that audition so angry well and done. so frustrated and hurt. That was actually the first time where I really felt objectified through my Indigenous lineage. And, you know, I've, I've had experiences like with friends when they find out you're Indigenous and they, you know, they would make comments on my answering machine or something and be like, oh, Nadia George, you know, is your last name? Like, do you know how to make it rain? And, you know, I was young. I didn't understand actually how insensitive those jokes were. And yeah. I don't think they did either. But, you know, that one really stands out for me. And I, I, these ones aren't so much directly myself, but watching my father, When he was in these institutions, for the longest time, he was not able to attend ceremony. He was not able to heal in a way that was conducive to Indigenous people. And it wasn't until about 97 or 96 that I remember him sending me a letter and being like, I get to go to Sweat Lodge. They're allowing us to, to go and, you know, make medicine bags this week. They're busting us. And the joy that was in the letters and in his voice, it was heartbreaking but also fulfilling yeah. at the same time. Because for me, it's like, I just don't understand why it took them so long. But at the same time, I'm glad that you're able to engage. Yeah. So sure. these are, yeah, I mean, the the pain is real. The, the only thing I'm very careful of is that I, I don't like to say that I've had it worse because my, my father was very good about making sure that, you know, I understood that, yes, I had struggles. I grew up poor. I grew up being disconnected from my family. I had a, you know, went through toxic relationships and and various types of abuse as a child and also into adulthood. But my struggles are still different than those who live in in, in rural Indigenous communities. Yeah. So that I just don't claim those things. And instead, I, I find a way to support yeah. And I find a way to create positive change. So speaking of support, how can non-Indigenous cultures or people get involved and help with addressing these stigmas and help advocate for Indigenous communities? I mean, I know that we spoke about conversation, talking about it first and through education, but how else can they get involved? You know, I think it's having the conversations, honestly, with your neighbors. Yeah. I think it also, like you said, it starts at home. Yeah, Teaching your children, talking to your kids about it. There's so many books out there for children they can read, you know, and and just taking the time to even just Google Indigenous authors. Right. Start reading some of those books. The other thing that I think is important is if you're looking for specific information, you know, going to a friendship center and just saying, you know, I don't really know where to begin. I want to start to learn. You can do that as well. 
Okay. But there's so much information available on Google. There's, to me, there's no excuse anymore. Yeah. The information is out there. You can access it. In regards to supporting, you know, looking up Indigenous organizations, I mean, the media has really talked about specific organizations that are doing some really great work around the residential school survivors, empowering our youth, you know, even if you're in the film industry, you know, making sure that you're not just doing what we consider tokenism, that if you're going to bring Indigenous people in to play roles, they can be doctors, they can be teachers they don't just have to be indigenous people and represent an indigenous person when we talk about branding I think a lot of people think when we when we think of support we're thinking of you know donating to organizations and but for me like you said it's the education but also businesses if you are a business owner representation the next time you do a commercial the next time you do a print campaign hire an indigenous person yeah work with them, talk with them about what you, what they could see the campaign as. And I think that that's kind of where it all starts. I think you can come at it from every angle, you know, putting ads out in indigenous communities, you know, when there's job openings, yeah, things like that. I think it's just a matter of taking the extra effort. And a lot of people, like I said, are, are fearful that they're going to get it wrong. Yeah, we're all going to get it wrong sometimes, but that's the only way we're going to learn to get it right. That's right, for sure. What are a few things about Indigenous culture or people that others can't seem to understand or get a grasp of, do you think? I honestly think community. Yeah. I think the way that we we work, the way that we support each other. Honestly, I mean, it shows all throughout Western world. It, you know, it was something that that's where the attempted eradication, a part of it is really about how can I grow as a person if I'm having to give to other people? It's such a one-minded thought that people just can't understand the concept for some reason that we're strengthening each other when we work together. (laughs) But also caretaking. When I worked for, uh, I'll just say, a child protection agency, I remember a worker came in, I was supporting a a mother and her son at a friendship center and was doing some parent coaching with, uh, with them. And I remember the worker came in and she asked me where the son was. And I said, Oh, he's playing in the gymnasium. And she goes, well, where's the mother? And I said, well, the mother's cooking in the kitchen. She goes, well, why are you the one watching the child? She, She should be watching that child should be with the mother. I said, excuse me. This is how Indigenous people work. Our aunties, our uncles, our cousins, we're all a part of caretaking. That's where more knowledge comes from. And it was a concept she just couldn't understand. She was like, well, how how am I going to know if that mother's going to be able to pay attention to her child? And I'm like, I was so baffled by this. And even the idea of like adoption. For us, adoption is not about paperwork. And it's about when a family needs support, we come in and we help with that. You know, sometimes people are ill. Sometimes people are are healing. Uh, they're on a healing journey and they, they don't have the capacity in that moment to be the person they need to be for everyone else in the home. And, and we come together to support those moments, not to shame them or to judge them, but to give them space to grow. And so, yeah, for me, it's I think that they just don't even understand how we work That's and why it worked. But I mean, even... 
I know as a kid, I mean, I can always remember my mom saying it takes a village to raise kids. And, and we would, my mom babysat kids and, and looked after kids for other people. And we went to aunts and uncles places and they looked after us, our grandparents. That's just, I don't know. I grew up, that's normal. That's the way it works. And it's interesting you say that, but for some reason it just doesn't transfer. <laughs> it so doesn't bizarre. transfer. It's and, so bizarre. You know, I think the other thing that people don't recognize is, and they don't give credit to is the resiliency, the resiliency that's in our communities for centuries, you know, people, not everyone, but people and organizations have been trying to eradicate us and we are still here. <laughs> so it, it's, it's like disgusting. The, it really is. The resiliency and strength of our people, the knowledge that we carry. And that goes back again to what I'm saying about the government going to other countries looking for answers. (laughs) And I'm like, you're discounting the amount of knowledge that is kept here in what, you know, people call Canada. But in Turtle Island, there's so much knowledge. Yeah, I just think that we are so undervalued. (laughs) it's, It's ridiculous. It absolutely is. Mm-hmm. Nadia, to date, what would you say is your biggest hire, your greatest win? You know, I I think a lot of people would say their children, which I, I do love my son and he is really wonderful. Of course. <laughs> He's done well for himself. Honestly, my biggest success is me. I have mm-hmm. had to do a lot of work on myself. I have had to fail multiple times, get myself back up. And so I think that my own journey is my biggest success. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with us saying that. No, I think Um, we should celebrate ourselves. Yeah. And I think because of that, now I'm in a place where I can help others. And that's just kind of, that's that's an extra bonus to what I feel my success is. It it just, it, it fills me up so much. And it makes me want to continue to work on myself, continue to be a better person, continue to learn from my mistakes. I love that answer. I think it's beautiful. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? Listening, having to learn to listen. You know, I think speaking with elders, but also my schooling in social work has really taught me what does it actually mean to listen? And I would also say being observant that, you know, just having to kind of survive through some points of my life, observing and listening. I would definitely say those are are it. How do you define success? What does that word mean to you? That's an interesting question because I think so often we have this checklist growing up of the normal things we're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to go to school, graduate high school, graduate college, maybe you meet your your love there. And you know, then you have kids and you get married, you buy a house, all these yeah. things. But to me, that's not success. Success to me is being content with who you are being kind to others. What is it that you bring to the world? And what does the world give back to you? Those to me are how I, I see success. Love and it. when I get to make someone else smile, when I'm smiling because someone else is laughing or smiling to me, that's a success. Yeah. And I think we do need to start changing the lens that we see success through. For sure. What was a turning point in your life and how did it affect you? I believe a turning point for me was honestly when I went to college, because I started to understand my own journey in a way that I'd never seen it before. You know, some people would say escaping 
the abusive relationships I was in, you know, some people would say gaining this platform, but for me, it was really about the schooling. You know, some people say you don't go to school to be a therapist to gain your own own therapy, but you do, whether you want to admit it or not, when you're in those programs, it really helps you understand how you affect the world and how the world has affected you. So I think that was a big turning point for me because it really opened my eyes around what I needed to do to improve myself. And the idea of, you know, this, you can't give from an empty cup situation. So being able to have knowledge where I could help other people, I would honestly say that that was the turning point for me. And my life has never been the same. Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I've definitely made a lot of mistakes since I, since I went to school and since I graduated. But that's part of life is making the mistakes and learning. Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like you said, we learn from it, right? And going to school was one of the best things I could have done for myself. What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? Oh, laughter. When I get to laugh with people, whether it be my friends, family, youth, colleagues, I always feel my best self when I'm laughing when I'm engaged in humor, because it, it, everything else in the world stops. And I just get to be in that moment. And it's a moment just full of joy. There's, there's nothing else in that space, but joy, humor, and happiness. Well, as they say, laughter is the best medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section. So the next group of questions is be one, two, three word answer type thing. Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Silly. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Silly, geeky, and... (laughs) What's the first thing you notice about a person? Their smile. Aside from necessities, what's one thing you could just not go without? Sushi. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I have it almost every day if I could. Oh, geez. Okay. What's the first thing you think when I say the word future? Children. What's your favorite stress-reducing activity? Hiking. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Freedom. If you came with a warning label, what would yours say? Watch out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, whether it's because I'm, I'm being crazy, silly, or because I've got a lot to say, my my warning label, just tell people to watch out. <laughs> I love it. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Listening. If you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? Mm. Well, you can use a few words. It doesn't have to be one, just okay. one. If I could change anything about the world, what would I change? Perspective. That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Nadia, if you could sit down and have a one hour conversation with anyone in the world alive or dead, who would it be and why? My dad. My dad passed away in the early 2000s and I would want to have that conversation because I would want to see, first off, if he's proud of the work that I've done, but also so he can hear about the growth of our people. Love that. Who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why? My son, watching him grow up has taught me so much about how the world's changing, how to work smarter and not always necessarily harder. (laughs) And also curiosity. Watching him grow just reminds me to still be curious of the world. It's that element of child, being a child. I think we get to a certain point in our lives when we're growing up and as adults, we forget what it's like to be 
a child and that it's okay to be a child sometimes and act silly and act crazy and do silly little things. We, we lose sight or sense of being a child. Absolutely. It's key. It is when people are like, oh, what skincare do you use? I'm like, it's called laughter and, and curiosity. And <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> what does the word empowerment mean to you, Nadia? Support. When, when we are empowering others, it's really about finding what they do well or what they love and supporting them. Sometimes people see empowerment as, yes, we share our own stories and that empowers people or, but it, it's not about us. Empowerment is about others. And so that when I, when I think of empowerment, I think of supporting people. Okay. If you were writing your autobiography, what would the title be? Oh, oh my. <laughs> that is a good question. Maybe just finding me. Beautiful. Simple. Two words. There we go. What is your personal model? Oh, your future self is excited to meet you. I love that. Yeah. I think about it all the time. When I speak with youth, I always say that. I'm like, you've got so much time. Yeah. And, you know, I think about, I do, I'm curious. I'm curious about what my 50-year-old self is doing. Yeah. I wonder what she's up to. And I wonder what she's learned. And I'm just, I'm just as excited to meet her as I know she is to meet me. We do have time, but we also have to teach our youth not to squander it either and to take mm-hmm. advantage of it. Because honestly, I mean, the older you get, the quicker life goes, seems to go by, the quicker That's time really passes. True. So I think we have to also instill that lesson not to squander the time and to make use of it, take advantage of it, because you really don't know how long you have here. That is true. Right? That is true. I think, yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point. In it. And again, it's about looking at success and, and what are we teaching our children? And when yeah. we talk about squandering that time, because I encouraged in my son to, if you're curious about something, if you enjoy something, dive in. Yeah. And if sure. that changes, don't beat yourself up over it. Go wherever the wind is taking you and just learn about yourself in the world. I, and again, I think that is a very, very important and integral lesson that we have to teach our kids too. That, you know what, if you find something that you're passionate about and you love, go for it all in, go all in and just do it. Because again, you only get one go around here at this thing called life. So why not do what makes you happy instead of pissing away the time or wishing away the time like you think about all these people that have these nine to five jobs that they fucking hate and they they spend the week monday to friday hoping and wishing and looking forward to the weekend you're pissing away five out of seven days that's a horrible way to live it, it really really is and you know my son is a very strong advocate as i said about working smarter and not harder and making <laughs> your money work for you and and all these kinds of things you know <laughs> He, he definitely knows way more about stock trading than I do. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he went through his phases. He went through everything from wanting to be, or he thought he was Bilbo Baggins, to sleeping in his toy box because he was yeah. a, a vampire, to <laughs> me taking him to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, because he wanted to be Amish. Like, you know, <laughs> this is, yeah, I got it. I, my child is, is, is very eccentric. <laughs> um, but you know what? He's successful in what he's doing now. And, and I truly believe it's because I allowed him to just find himself in the world. Such an important lesson for sure. Nadia, what would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? And what was your life like after learning it? Building boundaries. That is one of the most important things that we need to learn to do is building healthy boundaries. I have allowed so much 
taking to happen in my younger life because I thought that that's what I was supposed to do. When it came to toxic relationships, I don't use the word allow. That is something that happened to me versus something that I did. And I've I've recognized that. And so building healthy boundaries in both aspects, even now it's hard (laughs) because I want to, I want to say yes to everything. I want to help people, but sometimes we have to say no, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's about how we're saying it. So, you know, I'm just very honest with people when I just don't have the capacity or maybe I had the capacity in the moment and I said, yes, but other things have arisen. I, you know, I, I send my apologies and I just say, you know what, at this time I have to postpone and, you know, can we, can we collaborate at another time? I think that we need to start teaching our kids these things young, something as simple as, you know, we have a tendency to want to force our children to go hug people. Yes. I don't think that that's okay. Yes. yes. I think that we need to listen to our, our children and if they don't feel comfortable hugging someone, yeah. that they shouldn't have to just simple things like that, that we need to start instilling so yeah. i would definitely say it's setting funny back. it's funny you bring that up i've had that conversation recently and, and actually just before you and i got on this interview i was speaking with a friend about the word no and how it's okay to say no people have such a hard time saying that word and you know it really is a huge two-letter word and it carries a lot of weight but i think that we need to learn that it's okay to say no and, and going back to what you said about not being able to pour from an empty cup and you got to do what's right for you in the situation. And it's funny too, because I find that when we do say no, it's like people are waiting for the other shoe to drop and and give them a reason why we're saying no, you don't have to give anybody a reason. The answer is just no. And that's it. You don't have to explain yourself if you don't want to. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think on the, the flip side of it, we also need to start teaching ourselves and teaching our young ones that it's okay to be told no. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. They need to get used to hearing that word. Absolutely. Because you're not going to get a yes for everything. Yeah. And and that's why, like I say, especially when we talk about relationships, you're not going to be for everybody and not everybody's going to be for you. And that's That's okay. That's right. Nadia, if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? I think it would be to just to believe in yourself no matter what anyone else says, we talk about the opinions of others. We talk about showing ourselves kindness. We talk about all of those things. And I would just tell her that she is worthy, that she deserves to be in healthy relationships. And that when, when something doesn't feel right or feel safe, you need to leave. You need to change course. And there's nothing wrong with that. And if someone is pushing against it, that that's even more of a red flag, that they're not the right people in your lives, whether it's friends, family, relationships, and just to believe that your your gut is telling you where you need to go and just to believe in yourself and trust in yourself. Intuition. Mm-hmm. Lastly, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? Oh, wow. That's a, <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> I'd probably just say that you're better than what came before you. So the world is true. Beautiful. I love it. Nadia, thank you so very much for taking the time to be here and share in your journey and take me along your journey with you. This was such an incredibly inspirational and very educational chat and experience. Um, I am so honored and happy to have had this opportunity to sit down and, and talk with you and learn everything you have to teach and 
just learning about your story. You are such an inspirational woman and I appreciate you and I appreciate you taking the time to be here and share and welcome to the Empowerography community. I'm so happy to have you as a member. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And like I said, if it can even just help one person <laughs> understand <laughs> themselves a little better or give them a little bit of, like you said, empowerment to, to do whatever they want to do, then I've, I've done my job. And I really appreciate you having me. My pleasure and my honor. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Nadia George. She is a First Nations actor, media personality, and public educator. Thanks so much, Nadia. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. You as well. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca. Follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.